So good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is um, Bryony, and I'm part of the church family here. Um, I'm married to Rich, who is holding the enthusiastic tambourine player, my daughter, um, that you might have heard just now. Um, it is lovely to be speaking to you all again as we near the end of our journey through the book of Nehemiah. And our theme for this whole year, starting back in September, has been ambassadors and exiles, exiles and ambassadors. And we've been considering, through the book of Nehemiah, um, what it looks like to be ambassadors for Jesus when we find ourselves in unexpected places and times, which is pretty much the last few years, isn't it, really? And as we particularly find ourselves, and as the, the people of God find themselves exiles in a foreign land. And the story of Nehemiah, as we've looked at it, covers this period of time as the people of God slowly, bit by bit, return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And we've seen the challenge this brings as people try to stop them building the walls. We've seen public confession and parties and finally the walls being built and finished. And today we join them at a point where the wheels are slightly falling off. And I suppose the book of Nehemiah is really a snapshot of what we see throughout the story of the people of God. This back and forth between wholehearted commitment to God and then forgetting that and having to be drawn back to him. And in all of this, particularly um, as we unpack this episode of kind of disobedience, we can focus a lot on how people mess up, which is important, and of course we should acknowledge sin, but we can also see the incredible kindness and generosity of God in bringing his people back, and we've just sung all about that, but that God would continue to keep bringing his people back. So kind of hold that in your mind as well as we look at today's passage, and I'm just going to jump straight in now to Nehemiah 13 verses 1 to 14 if you've got your Bibles or it should appear on the screens behind me. So this passage um, is entitled Nehemiah's Final Reforms. On the day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. I'm going to pause just there on that. So verses 1 to 3 of this particular section kind of belong to chapter 12, which is the previous chapter. And they're basically talking about the need for Israel to stay distinct from other people. And this is a theme that comes out throughout the whole Testament, particularly in the prophets, it feels a little bit different to the rest of the passage, so I thought it was worth pausing there anyway, just explaining that that's why this feels different to the next part that we're going to get on to. So this is verse 4. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I, that's Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. 
Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of a house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the room, and then I put them back in put them into the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God in neglect? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan son of Zagur and son of Matiah their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of God and its service. This is the word of the Lord. So, what is going on here? Well, Nehemiah has returned to King Xerxes in Babylon, who he worked for. And if you remember, right back in September, he goes to the king and asks if he can come back to Jerusalem. So he's done that, and then he's returning again to Jerusalem to see what's going on and how things have gone after he's left. And I think it's fair to say that he is not very impressed with what he finds. And this chapter and the following chapter, 14, show Nehemiah doing some serious course correction with the people of God. Firstly, Eliashab, who is a priest and whose job it was to care for the temple and to help lead the people in worship, has let this man, Tobiah, set up a room in the middle of the temple. And there are two reasons why this is particularly frustrating to Nehemiah. Firstly, it's because Tobiah was God's enemy. So he was one of the men who tried to stop Nehemiah and the people building the walls in the first place. So he's not just a friend of the priest, he's not a neutral person. He's actively been against the people of God. He was also an Ammonite, who were the people, of God, people who were mentioned at the beginning of this passage as people who were not allowed to go into the temple. So this person isn't, as I said, he's not just a neutral person. He's actively against the people of God. And here he is setting up home in the middle of the temple. And secondly, there's been this kind of knock-on effect. In the laws that were given to Moses, the people were to tithe, which means to give a tenth of their harvest, so grain, wine, oil, to the temple. And part of that was to provide for the Levites. So the Levites are this Israelite tribe, and I talked a lot about them a few weeks ago when we looked at the genealogy of the Levites, but their job was to be worship leaders and to look after the temple and to lead God's people in worship. But because there hasn't been this provision for them because they, the people of God haven't been tithing. They haven't been able to get their wage, basically, from the temple. So the Levites didn't have to work because they worked in the temple. So the people gave their tithe so the Levites could eat. It was like a pretty practical system. And yet, the people have stopped doing that. And so the Levites, because they can't provide for themselves, have gone back to the fields. They've gone back to farming and so therefore are no longer leading worship in the temple. So not only have they let God's enemy into the temple, 
but they've also stopped functioning as a living, breathing, interdependent community. And that is the truth, isn't it, about the kind of infectious nature of sin. It creeps everywhere, and it rarely just affects us. And Nehemiah sees this, and he sees that things are starting to crumble. The community were called to serve each other. They were called to function as an entirety. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul will talk about being one body with many parts. And this is what the people of God were supposed to be kind of manifesting at this point, this working as a team, functioning as a people. And so in a moment that really should kind of remind us of Jesus clearing out the temple, Nehemiah kicks everybody out in frustration. And I will see um, in chapter 14 that, that his frustration, he gets more feisty as the book goes on, I think it's fair to say. Because he had a mission. And Nehemiah knew that God's instructions to the people were about God wanting to protect and provide for them. And so Nehemiah knew that every time the people of God stepped away from God, they were stepping outside of that protection and that provision. Nehemiah has this clear vision of what God wants. And we've seen that actually throughout Nehemiah's story. That it wasn't the rebuilding of wall, the walls wasn't the end goal. Nehemiah knows that the end goal was about re-establishing worship and making sure the people were set apart once more as special and unique and distinct from the other people around them. And that's what Nehemiah is kind of going after in these chapters. So he clears the temple. He kicks Tobiah out. He gets the people to restart giving their offerings and their tithes. He puts new men in charge and makes sure the system is working again. And then at the end, he cries out and says, Lord, remember me for this. He wants to know that God sees him. Maybe part of it is like, God, come on, these people are so annoying. See that I'm working hard here. Like he is frustrated in this moment. But what I find interesting about this passage is that the writer of the book of Nehemiah could have stopped at chapter 13. Like, he could have stopped with the dedication of the temple. That would have been a great ending to a book, wouldn't it? Like, all this battle, they've, like, fought off people, they've, they've struggled, and the walls have rebuilt, and they have a big party, the end. But he doesn't. He carries on and adds this section. You see, I wonder whether this is pointing to a bigger thing about the story of God. Because the story of the people of God is worship and surrender followed by disobedience and neglect. At their highest point, we see a people who show us the potential that we have to live wholehearted lives for God, with God right at the centre And when we saw them parading around the walls a few weeks ago, I imagine that kind of the noise and the celebration would have looked made our worship services look pretty tame. We have these moments, these high moments. But then we also see them at their lowest points, a people who are walking in the opposite direction to where God wants them. And I don't know about you, but this kind of pendulum swing is one that I see in my own life from eyes fixed on God and living a life pointed towards him to struggling with the same old sins of losing my temper, of judging others, of selfish living. And our lives are really not that different, are they, to the lives of those people who followed Nehemiah back to Jerusalem. 
But rather than being depressed, and I realize from the very, very silent uh, feeling in here that that is quite a depressing thought, but rather than being depressed, I think we can draw real encouragement. Firstly, because the high moments in this story of rebuilding a wall, of standing firm in the face of opposition, show us the potential that we, the church, have for following God, for being his hands and his feet in the world. We all have the potential in us to be ambassadors. That is part of our identity. And then the low moments, like the one that we've read today, remind us that ultimately, even though we can be God's hands and feet, we can't keep it together. We will mess up. And it's in moments like that and countless other points of the Old Testament that we're reminded that we need a saviour. It points to our need for someone to rescue us from this win-sin cycle because we can't do it ourselves. And when Jesus arrives on earth, the people are hungry for a Messiah because they know their story. They know about this pendulum swing, that there's nothing they can do to keep themselves in right relationship with God. And so though this story, particularly this morning, can be slightly depressing, it's also a reminder for all of us of our need for Jesus. And I think that's why the writers of the Old Testament actually don't shy away from stories where people falter. When Abraham tries to push through God's promises, when Moses or King David commit murder, when Gideon is fearful and untrusting, those moments are there so we see that we can't do it without Jesus. And so that's the kind of big picture view of what this story reminds us of, that we have this great potential and we're in need of a saviour because potential isn't the same as being perfect, of perfection. And so that's the kind of big picture view. But if we zoom in on today and we see this man, Eliashib, who has become distracted from the service of God, And he's become distracted literally by the enemy of God. And we don't really know how Elisha got into this mess. We know that he'd been given an important role within the temple. And he was responsible for these storehouses, the provision for the worship leaders. And we also know that he has become a close associate, the word they use, of Tobiah, And I kind of wonder if this was Tobiah's plan all along. Because he had failed to get the walls destroyed. He'd failed to stop the building work. Because in chapter 2, he questions the builder's motives. You know, he tries to get them to doubt themselves. You'll remember that from a a long time ago. In chapter 4, he mocks the builders and then physically attacks them. And finally, in chapter 6, he tries to frighten and intimidate them. And none of these strategies work. None of them work in stopping the walls being built, in stopping God doing the thing he wanted to do. None of it works. And yet here he is, literally having set up camp in the middle of the temple. And his presence meant that worship couldn't continue. So it turns out that he didn't need to threaten or hurt or ridicule God's people. He just needed to distract them. He had discovered a way to make the people of God ineffective was to get them to welcome him in and to become a distraction. And if he distracted them from worshipping God and meeting with him, then his work was kind of done. (laughs) He didn't need to do anything else. 
And it had worked. Worship dried up as the Levites returned to the fields because the community was no longer supporting their ministry. It turned out that distraction was all that Tobiah needed. And this is a tactic of the enemy that has never, ever changed. And I am aware now more than ever that I live distracted. And I think the enemy, and we believe in this church that God does have an enemy, he doesn't need to do too much if he keeps me distracted. If he keeps me distracted, then I'm not going to spend time with Jesus and do the things that God wants me to do. And it is a subtle, slow drift, isn't it? Like nobody sets out to be distracted, do they? We don't, we don't aim for that. We don't aim to be distracted from a life-giving relationship with Jesus. And yet it's all too easy to find ourselves there. And I wonder, where are you most likely to be distracted today? And I want to share just two areas, um, really honestly, about my life, where I particularly wrestle with distraction. And you might not struggle with this stuff. In fact, you might not be distracted at all. Fantastic. I think you're lying, but fantastic. Um, and you might not struggle with these two things. Um, but I hope that it just gives you a little bit of kind of meat on the bone to get the kind of like idea of, of what we're talking about here. And these are things that practically stop me from cultivating my relationship with Jesus by getting in the way of prayer, getting in the way of silence, Bible reading. But also, these are things that distract me by filling my mind so that I miss God and what he's doing around me and in the lives of others. So the first thing, there's two, the first thing is comparison. Comparison is definitely something that can easily distract me. Comparing my life to others. Anybody else? Oh, it's a few. Thanks, Steve. You're the only person who's brave enough to put your hand up. I appreciate that, mate. <laughs> In the world, of course, of social media, this has been made even more easier, hasn't it, while we see everybody else's highlight reel. But I shared a few weeks ago how the season of being a stay-at-home parent that I've been through recently had made me compare my life a lot to those of peers who were kind of moving on in their careers. And we live in a, quite a small house down the hill in Walkley. And over the past couple of years, lots of our friends have moved into lovely, big, spacious houses and instead of increasing the size of our home, we've just decided to increase the size of our family. We just keep packing, <laughs> packing babies in there. <laughs> and, um, and even though I love my home, I love my neighbours, and I don't want to be anywhere else, I love it. If I'm honest, when I'm tired, when I've stepped on some more flipping Lego, I, <laughs> I have... I have the opportunity to be led into distraction and into comparison. And I felt the Lord convicting me of this. Grace doesn't want to move. That's why she's crying. That's my daughter. Um, <laughs> I felt the Lord um, convicting me of this a few months ago. And I felt like God said that I needed to come off um, all um, like house buying websites for a year. It's so, like to, to basically not go on right move for a year. Um, and so that's um, what I decided to do. And I'm learning to not live distracted in this area. Because I know that when I'm comparing, I end up missing what God wants to do with the life he's given me now. 
So that's comparison. And the other area, just to flip it slightly differently, is tech. And that's kind of a pretty obvious area. But I know my life can be distracted by technology. My phone is something that I have a constant battle with. And I know that most days I use it too much, if I'm honest. I can tell you that I have missed significant conversation opportunities with my children because I've been distracted by an online conversation. And I have rhythms of switching off. I have rhythms of taking breaks from social media. I use screen time limits. I've written blogs about this. I have recorded podcasts about this. And yet still, this is a battle for me. And I would say tech use is, at the moment, the thing that gets in the way the most of me spending time with God. I know there is a battle for my attention. I know that the enemy wants to distract me so that I, like the people of God in our story today, let worship and intimacy slide. So I wonder what might be distracting you today from spending time with Jesus and hearing what he has to say to you. What's getting in the way of opening our Bibles? Of praying for the people that we said, you know, we promised that we would pray for? What's distracting us from even taking five minutes to be silent and just ask God to speak in the chaos of our week? Maybe it's unforgiveness or bitterness. You can't let go of something and it's distracting. Maybe worry is distracting you. Maybe it's money or shopping. Maybe like Eliashib, you have let someone into your life who is actually distracting you from following Jesus. What's sad from Eliashib's point of view is that his job gets given to somebody else. Other trustworthy men are given that role, which is desperately sad, isn't it? God has things to do in this world, and he is looking for willing, obedient, undistracted people. And I think sometimes we can get all angsty, can't we, about what our calling is and what we should be doing, what does God want me to do? But I am becoming more and more convinced that if we choose to live a life that is undistracted and if we say that we are going to say yes every time we feel that tiny nudge from God to say hello to somebody, to do something, every time we all say, we're going to say, actually, I'm going to say yes to those things, then that's all God needs to use us. Just undistracted, willing hearts. I don't think it has to be actually more complicated than that. That if we're living lives in alignment with God, then he can give us our assignment. If we're living lives in alignment with God, then he can give us our assignment. In verse 11, it says, So I, Nehemiah, rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and I stationed them at their posts. He stationed them at their posts. When it comes to living an undistracted life, we need to be stationed at our posts. That means standing firm in a position of obedience and alertness towards God. Because if God comes looking for us and we are not stationed at our posts, ready to hear and act, then we're the ones who miss out. And that is, I guess, the kind of verse that God has just kept bringing back to me today. That are we stationed? Are we stationed at our posts? And to be stationed at our posts means cutting our ties with distractions. And that might be as simple as switching your phone off at 8 p.m. each night. 
or it might be as hard as removing yourself from an unhealthy friendship or situation. It might be coming off the right move website or finally offering forgiveness to the person we've held in bitterness for too long. If we're going to be stationed at our posts, ready to serve God, then we need to be honest about the things that are going to stop us. And just as Nehemiah threw Tobiah and his belongings out of the temple, we need to be willing to throw out old habits and ways of thinking that are stopping us from being stationed at our posts. And we may find we need to be accountable to others, to our cell group, about the things that we have let distract us. Alan shared in our prayer time before the 9 a.m. that he was reminded of something one of, I think it was one of the interns once said to you about how if you want to see the stars, you have to go to somewhere where there's no light pollution. And I just felt like that was just a word for God for us today, that actually we can only see the stars when we are undistracted by earthly light. And I think that just tied so like, beautifully into what we're talking about this morning. Because the enemy is clever and he will keep us distracted And if he does that, he doesn't really need to do anything else. But we serve a God who can equip us to fight even the most subversive battles. And I think I want to read, somebody else said what I want to say better than I can say. So um, I'm going to just put it up. Can I have it up on the screen? Actually, I'll just read from here. So this is um, from the book Things That Matter by Joshua Becker, um, who's a, a pastor who specializes in kind of living an undistracted life. And this is what he wrote. It is important to remind ourselves of the value of the most important duties in front of us. Your most important work will never be the easiest. In fact, it will probably be one of the hardest things you ever do. Being an intentional parent, loving spouse, faithful employee, inspirational artist, good boss, or selfless member of a community is never the easiest road to travel. But in the long run, there is more joy and happiness to be found there than anywhere else. There is more joy and happiness to be found in meeting with God and following him of living undistracted than anything else. And so the encouragement I want to leave us with today is to know our weakness, to know that we are easily distracted, to ask God to help us wage war with distraction and to station ourselves at our posts, stationed, ready to worship Stationed, ready to be intimate with our Heavenly Father. Stationed, ready to act when he speaks. And stationed with an undistracted life. I'm going to invite the band up. And I'm going to finish by just reading a prayer over us. So, um, band, if you want to... Shall we stand? I'm going to read this, this prayer, this liturgy over us. And then the band are going to lead us in a time of worship. And then Alan will lead um, a time of response. Jesus, here I am again, desiring a thing that were I to indulge in it would wage war against my own heart and the hearts of those I love. O Christ, rather let my life be thine. Take my desires, let them be subsumed in still greater desire for you until there remains no room for these lesser cravings. In this moment, I might choose to indulge a fleeting hunger or I might choose to love you more. Faced with this temptation, I would rather choose you, Jesus, but I am weak, so be my strength. I am shadowed, be my light. I am selfish, 
Unmake me now and refashion my desires according to the better design of your love. Given the choice of shame or glory, let me choose glory. Given the choice of this moment or eternity, let me choose in this moment what is eternal. Given the choice of this easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross, Give me grace to choose to follow you, knowing that there is nowhere apart from your presence that I might find the peace I long for. No lasting satisfaction apart from your reclamation of my heart. Let me build then, my King, a beautiful thing by long obedience, by the steady progression of small choices that laid end to end will become like the stones of a pleasing path stretching to eternity, and unto your welcoming arms, and unto the sound of your voice, proclaiming the judgment, well done.